Amen. What an incredible time of worship. And Jason, I don't know if you, uh, you planned that, that second song where it talked about God being the, the father of the fatherless. Like I told you, uh, I was at that Ranger game where that dad fell out of the stands. And um, when I see that song, I've done a lot of funerals of a lot of kids, dads. And uh, to know that God is the God of the fatherless is just what an incredible hope to me. I know some of you face that as children, that you didn't have your dad for whatever reason, maybe because of, of death, maybe because of other reasons. But, but that is just such a, a powerful song and a powerful message as I think about the Stone family this week. And I think about the brevity of life, and I think about what God is doing even here at EVC. I am so thankful for this opportunity over the summer to be able to share more of my heart and, and what God is doing in my life. And I'm, I'm so, I, I, got, I finally got to listen to Kyle's message online last night, and I sent him a text. And I said, man, he did a phenomenal job. God spoke to me through Kyle's message last week with, uh, with Jason, talking about God's stories. I hope he spoke to your heart. If you missed any of those messages, I want you to know they're available online. And it's important, I think, for you to hear them because... They're part not only of, of our heart as a staff, but where God is leading us. And especially as, as Jason talked about God's stories last week, what I went to Jason right after that first service is I thought about how God has used those kinds of stories in my life and how each one of you have God's stories. Each one of you have ways that God uses you, and we want to know those stories, and we want to share those stories with this congregation. There are going to be times that we might do that in a message but we want you even now to begin to tell your stories. This week, we've had two or three that have already come in, even as a response to this message. So, I want to encourage you. If God has a story that, that He lays on your heart, and you'll know if He does, that He wants you to share with somebody else. Right now, we've got it set up just to jason at eaglesviewchurch.org. That is Jason's email. We've got it set up through there. Beginning next week, we'll have a place on our website where you can share your stories. Because we want us as a congregation to know those stories. One of those stories right now in the life of our church is our lead pastor. By the way, I am not the lead pastor. He is much better looking than I am. And so we want you to be back when, when he comes back. But he is on a time uh, right now called sabbatical. It is a time of rest and replenishment. Bart Howe began this church 12 years ago. And through lots of, of work and and lots of different staff coming through and, and being here. He just felt drained. And God has given us as pastors, other churches that have gone before us to help us know, what do we do in a time like that when you feel like you've been that tanker that's continually been given out and you need just God's refueling and replenishment? And he is on sabbatical for a, for a few months right now. He's right in the, kind of the, on the last third of that. I have described this and described it to our, our leadership council when we were talking through this that it's kind of like a surgery. Some of you have had surgery even this summer. And when a, surgeon, when a surgeon discovers that there's something within you that you need surgery, there's a time that you get ready that you admit that you need it, right? And I am so proud of our lead pastor, Bart Howe, who, who understood that, who saw the signs in his own heart and life that he needed that. But, and there's a time where you go up until the surgery. Then there's God doing something and doing the surgery in your life. And that's what this first couple of months has been for him as he's been with his family and been with friends and, and gotten away with God himself. And this last third of that is how God shares that new vision. 
it's kind of what I call the physical therapy part of the surgery. Every time we have surgery, we need time in order for us to get back ready for what God wants to do next in our life. And that's what this last third of sabbatical is. So I want to encourage you, at this time, Bart has written a letter. Many of you should, you should have received it by email. If you didn't, then we got a problem or we, don't have, we have the wrong email. But we are making physical copies of that available at each of the exits. Right out here on this table, as you go out this, this door, one of our ushers can hand it to you. It's also available over in our children's ministry exit as well. I want you to hear this message from Bart that he's written this letter. I want you to know that I support our lead pastor 1,000% in doing this. It is an incredible joy that he understood this in his own heart and life and took this time and set a great example for the rest of us to get the kind of rest and worship and replenishment that each of us need. I just wanted to, to bring that to your attention as we do this because as we, as we go through this time, it has been a joy to be on the staff the last 15 months. And we've got a phenomenal staff. And we are excited that we are all ready to go looking forward to this fall and the growth of this fall. This summer, as you know, attendance kind of goes up and down because of, of uh, summer, but I want you to look around, okay? We still have a lot of people on vacation. So as you look at this service, it's pretty full here in the dead middle of the summer when it's hot outside and everything else. What does God have in store for this place and for this church? I am so excited that we've got the staff that we have, but that you're a part of it. One of the things that I'm so thankful for about this sabbatical is it's called all of us to go to a new level of leadership. For us on staff to do that, but for us as a church, as the body of Christ, to fill in whatever gaps may be. And you guys have done a phenomenal job of that. Through VBS, through our kids at camp, we've got 38 campers right now up in Sherman that are, that are experiencing God's grace and love, our children's ministry camp. To see our student ministry active out, even doing wash and worship. There are tremendous things that God is doing here. And we're in the middle of this series called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And today we get to experience an ugly king, okay? This is the ugly. He is the ugly of the ugliest as far as we look at Old Testament kings. But I want you to think about this. When we hear Paul, who in 2 Timothy says, God's word is living and breathing. You know what God's word he was talking about? We didn't have the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. Some of us believe that the Old Testament is kind of unattainable and unreachable. We read these stories and we don't see the emotion. We don't see the things that, that God is doing in these characters' lives. But Ahab is a character that you know. You probably work with somebody like Ahab. They are your Ahab. You know that they are evil. I mean, they are evil incarnate. When you think about them, you think evil, bad things about them. Well, that's kind of Ahab. But this is God's inspired words. What we've attempted to do in this series is to place you right in the middle of the historical nature of God's Word so that you can see that these characters are real. But one of the favorite things of mine about my smartphone is that, number one, it's smarter than me. Amen? Okay. How many of you, your smartphones are smarter than you? Okay. There's a bunch of liars here this morning, okay, because you didn't raise your hands. Because I know your smartphone is smarter than you are. But one of the things I love about my smartphone is the ability to tell me where I'm at and how to get where I'm going. It's that Google Maps, whatever thing, that, that it helps me to get places. But there are two critical places of information that when you're determining where you are going, you have to also know where you're at. 
And so as we continue in this story about the kings, I want us to take just a moment to kind of do this global GPS as to how did we get to Ahab. We first talked about, first of all, the United Kingdom. So I think we have a slide. There we go. There are three kings in the United Kingdom. First of all, that is when all the 12 tribes of Israel were together. The first we talked about was Saul. And if you'll know, notice, these first three kings, each of them reigned for 40 years. You can just kind of put that in the back of your mind, understanding that if there's a long reign of a king, there's typically that God is very active in the life of that king. When there's a very short life of a king, you can know that God was moving them off the throne very quickly, okay? And so in Saul, we see from about, this is the time period, 1050 to 1010 B.C., 40-year reign. We saw Saul the disobedient. Then we went to David. David was the greatest king of all the kings of Israel. Went from 1010 to about 970 B.C., David was known as the shepherd king, is what we preached about when we did that message. A couple of weeks ago, Kyle did Solomon. Solomon was 970 to 930. We called him the wise king, but, but Kyle talked about the tragic nature of his story, where he was disobedient towards the end of his reign and in, to a large degree throughout his whole reign. He was very wise, but his heart was turned away because of his marriages. And as a result of that, God judged the nation of Israel and Solomon's reign and he said, you will not be king, or your son will not be king of the United Kingdom. From that point, we go to what we call the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom is Israel, which is the ten northern tribes. So this is the northern part. It stretches up into around where Lebanon is today. And so these are the ten northern tribes. They're Israel. And then the, ten, or the two southern tribes, Judah, which was the largest tribe in Israel, and Benjamin. They included Jerusalem, which is about halfway, and then it went to the southern portion of that. And then we have these two kingdoms. We first of all have Jeroboam, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon because the northern kingdom is, or excuse me, the southern kingdom is always going to be a person who falls in the lineage or line of David. Jesus Christ will come through the lineage of the southern kingdom kingdom. There will always be a son or grandson of David on the throne in the southern kingdom. But we see Rehoboam and Jeroboam. These are two bad kings. We're not going to be talking about them during this series, but I want us to get to where we are today. Next, we see Abijah and Nadab. These also are two bad kings. So we're going good, bad, and ugly. These are all bad kings. The next king in the southern kingdom is Asa. Asa, as you can see, reigns for a good long time, and he was a good king. We're going to hear about him even next week. Baasha is on the other side, again, another bad king. Jeroboam and Nadab, Nadab is the son of Jeroboam, but then God judges Jeroboam's reign, and he says, you will never have a son. I will destroy every male heir in your kingdom. And sure enough, Baasha fulfills that prophecy, and Jeroboam's family is wiped off the map, and Baasha creates a new line. We go to the next one, and we see Eli. What you're going to see here is lots of kings in the northern kingdom and only one king, Asa. Again, short reigns on the left, a long reign on the right. Eli is Baasha's son, and he reigns how long? A whole one year, okay? So we know that he was a bad king. God judges him. We go to the next king, Zimri. Zimri kills Elah. He wipes his family off the face of the earth. I mean, these are tragic, tragic stories. You'll find all of these in First and Second Samuel. You'll find an understanding of the United Kingdom. 
And then in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you'll hear all the stories of these other kings. And one of the reasons we're doing this is, quite honestly, as I begin to think about this, there's not a lot of sermon series that I've ever heard about the kings of Israel. I've even looked online. You don't find a lot of these things. But there are rich stories in us understanding what's happening. And from Zimri, we go to a man named Amri, who is extra bad. And Amri has a son. Amri's son is Ahab. And Ahab, and his counterpart over in the southern kingdom, is, you've ever wondered, you've ever wondered where you hear the term, jumping Jehoshaphat. Well, here it is, okay? If you've never heard that term, then you're not from the south like me. So, uh... Jumping Jehoshaphat, okay, now that is where you see, but he is also a good king. Again, a line from his father, a good king. But Ahab, Ahab is the worst. That's been really fun, funny as I have heard from my father-in-law. When I mention Ahab, he thinks Moby Dick, okay? He's a literature guy. And I don't know what it says, but when I said Ahab to Pat Howell, he thought the Ray Stevens song, Ahab the Arab, okay? So I'm just saying... Just putting it out there for everybody to understand. We got, we got lots of different things going on with this idea of Ahab. But Ahab was the ugly. Next to Satan himself, Ahab was more than likely the worst person to go on the face of the earth. That's what the Bible says about him. How would you like to be Ahab? I want us to, I wanted you to see how we got to Ahab, but I want you to ask this question. How would you like to be Ahab? If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29-33, through 33, we see what God thinks about Ahab. Listen to this. Ahab, son of Amri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa. King Asa is that great king who is over in the southern kingdom, And in the 38th year of his reign, Ahab comes to power. He reigned in Samaria 22 years. But Ahab, son of Amri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam. Remember what happened to Jeroboam? That's the reason I showed you that. Jeroboam was the the first king of the divided kingdom. He was king of the northern tribes, but God wiped his name and his children and his heirs off the face of the earth because he was such an evil king. And what God says about Ahab is, as though it were not enough. In another version it says, and because Ahab thought Jeroboam's sin to be so trivial, okay, that it was just some, some next thing that he needed to do, so trivial, he married Jezebel. Now, there's a name that nobody names their children Jezebel. Have you noticed that? There's a reason for that. Now, if you know somebody or somebody in your family that they named Jezebel, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to to cut them off a little bit. But Jezebel literally, the Jews, the Hebrews gave her this name. It means dunghill. Okay? I could say it lots of other ways, but it means dunghill. How would you like to be called dunghill? That's what Jezebel literally means Ahab chooses her as his wife. She was the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians, again, marrying outside the Hebrew race. And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar to Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more, now think about this, he did more to provoke 
the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. How would you like that on your tombstone? Okay? That you did more to make God angry than anybody else before you, potentially after you. How would you like to be Ahab? This was one of the worst individuals and people on the first face of the earth. And we look at him as an ugly king. And the path that we see in Ahab's life is what we're going to journey down today. This journey of where we've been and where we're going as we look at this and how can we apply these things to our lives. It is a path toward a life of self-centeredness. That's what we see in Ahab's life. It is a path toward a life of self-centeredness. But what are the journeys that we take down this path? The first step that we see in the life of Ahab is the step of disobedience. If you want to say to yourself, how do I keep from going down this path? How do I not end up with the worst person ever on the face of the earth on my tombstone? Then you need to understand what happened in Ahab's life. The first step he made was disobedience. Can you relate to that? I can. Is that not the first place into sin? Is that we disobey what God has in store for us. If you listen to Kyle's message, that's what happened in Solomon's life. If you listen to the message about Saul, that's what Saul was, who he was. He was Saul the disobedient. When we look at our lives, the first step that we make is often the worst step. And that's the reason that God brings this whole idea of repentance in our life. When we take a step, repentance says that we turn and go away from that. We, we need to go back towards where God has for us in the first place. The first step in Ahab's life was a step of disobedience. Are you noticing a pattern here? As you see these kings pass from son to son and from generation to generation, you see disobedience. The way that the Bible puts it is this, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord just like whoever his father. Folks, the message for us is this. If you want to see holiness in your children's lives, If you want to see godliness in your children's lives, then you need to live a godly life. That sometimes goes without saying, but we need to say it here today. If we want godliness in generations that flow after us, we need godliness in our lives. That means it's going to be some tough choices. We're going to have to make choices to go away from self-centeredness. But Ahab didn't do that. I want to point out two specific things that Ahab did to be disobedient. But I need you and I to be asking those same questions. What is it in our life that we're doing that is against what God has called us to do? The first is that he had the city of Jericho rebuilt. Now we have to go back historically and remember that Jericho is one of those scenes that if I could go and I could see a scene from heaven of what happened, I would like to see that scene about Jericho. Because the children of Israel walked around it 13 times And then the walls fell inward. And God was glorified with the destruction of the city of Jericho. And Joshua wrote this, this prophecy. He said in Joshua 6.26, it's not going to be up on the screen, but you can write it down if you'd like. In this first step of disobedience that Ahab had, he went against a prophecy that Joshua had written. After the walls had fallen in Jericho, he says, at the time of Joshua, he invoked this curse May the curse of the Lord fall on anyone who tries to rebuild the town of Jericho. The cost of his firstborn son he will lay at its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son 
He will set up the gates. Joshua put that out there for the children of Israel. And some 700 years later, Ahab knew this prophecy. Keep in mind, these stories would continue to be presented to them orally. They would be presented to the kings. They would pass them down from generation to generation. And Ahab knew this story, but he went against God. And we see this in 1 Kings 16.34. It says this, And it was during Ahab's reign that Heel, a man from Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. When he laid its foundation, it cost the life of his oldest son, Abiram. And when he completed it and set its gates, it cost him the life of his youngest son, Segub. This all happened according to the message from the Lord concerning Jericho, spoken by, the, by Joshua, son of Nun. You see, Ahab took a specific step of disobedience, something that God had told him not to do, he did. He rebuilt Jericho at the cost of this man's oldest son, and his youngest son, just like Joshua. One of the reasons I do this is because I want you to see how in the Old Testament, when a prophecy is given, you see it fulfilled. Many prophecies in the Old Testament point to Christ, and that's the message of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is always pointing to Jesus Christ, who is going to be coming at the beginning of the New Testament. The New Testament is always pointing back to Jesus Christ, to who He is. Jesus is the central figure of both the Testaments, old and new. All these kings are pointing to the obedience that Christ is. It's as if the Old Testament is setting up the stage. It's saying, this is how the disobedient live. But Christ is coming. Christ is coming. The New Testament points back to Christ and says, Christ has come. A new way has been made for us. We don't have to live like these guys anymore. We don't have to live in the pattern and possession of of disobedience. We can live in obedience. So Ahab rebuilt Jericho. The second thing that he did was he promoted idolatry in the people of Israel. He instituted the public worship of two gods. These gods were Baal and Asherah. These were fertility gods. Baal was the male individual. Asherah was the female. And there would be prophets of Baal and Asherah. And the whole process that was going on in this area, in this time and region when Israel is developing, (coughs) is that Baal and Asherah would be consorts. They would actually be husband and wife gods. And so Baal would have prophets and Asherah would have prophets. And what would happen is they would have prostitutes and these were fertility religions that would happen that they would come together and they would have not only have sex with the other prostitutes that were from the other god they would also have sex with the people who were worshiping these gods we think our world is messed up the world was very messed up then and what ahab did as many kings had done before they let these temples and they let this worship go on but ahab took it to a whole nother level He built shrines for them. He promoted the worship of these gods. He promoted them so much that he worshipped these gods himself. You remember that the prophet who was alive during Ahab's time was a man named Elijah. Our children just studied this as we did our VBS. This is one of their main stories. And we're not focusing on this today, but I want you to remember what happened. Elijah comes and he prophesies against Ahab. And Ahab says... 
He wants a challenge. And Elijah says, God is going to give you a challenge. You get your prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, 450 prophets of Asherah, and you have them meet on Mount Carmel. And I'm going to show up on that day. And he says, whoever's God, whichever God is God, will show himself that day. Whoever, we're going to take two bulls, we're going to place them on the altars, and whichever God shows himself by fire, he is God. And he challenges the people of Israel. You can just see Elijah on that day. He challenges them. He says, whoever's God is God, you worship him. If it's going to be Baal and Asherah, then you worship him. But if it's God the Lord, then you had better worship him. And he taunts the prophets of Baal and Asherah all day long. It's, an hilar- it's a hilarious story, and I encourage you to go read it. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19, right around there. 1 Kings 19, I want you to go and read that because it puts you in an understanding of what's happening and how Ahab is standing in open opposition of God. I know a lot of you in this room, and I don't know any of you that would stand in open opposition to God as Ahab did on that day that would just put your face towards God and kind of thumb your nose at Him and say, God, you're really not God. If you want to show yourself, then I will worship you. But if not, I'm going to worship who I want to. That's what Ahab did. And there was a great victory that happened on that day. Elijah taunted the 450 prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Asherah. And he said, why don't you go wake up your God? I think he's sleeping. I think he's snoozing over there a little bit. Why don't you go wake him up? Why don't you roust him out a little bit and get him to come on out? And he he taunts them. And then he prays. And God falls upon the altar. And he takes not only the sacrifice, but he burns up the rock. He burns up the wood. He burns up the water that they had poured over these sacrifices. God showed himself that day. Ahab was the disobedient. He took it to a whole new level. Of any king that had ever been, Ahab's disobedience went to a whole nother level. To be idolatrous. So the first commandment that we see Ahab breaking is one that God had said very clearly. You will have no other gods before me. And you will create no graven images. Ahab breaks them. Number one. Number two. He breaks them. Here's the question for us. What are the idols that you have in your life? Joy Davidman, who was the wife of C.S. Lewis, wrote this. In her book called Smoke on the Mountain, she says that idolatry is really just something that makes us happy, that we place in the place of God who desires to be our all in all. Can you think of any in your, anything in your life that you look to for happiness? I know I was looking forward two weeks ago to a vacation. We can make idols out of vacations. We can make idols out of our kids. We can make idols out of our homes. We can make idols out of our TVs, our things that that we desire. We can make idols out of our wives or our husbands. Anything that we look to to make us happy, to bring fulfillment to us because Folks, as believers, we should know that there is one and one only that we look to to bring us fulfillment. And that's God Himself. So many marriages and weddings that I do, I look at couples, and usually they're young couples, kind of starry-eyed, who say, oh, we'll never have a fight. I'm going, really? Okay? Well, good luck with all that, okay? 
Yeah, we'll never have a fight. We'll never do these things. Oh, and they say things like this. Oh, he completes me or she completes me. I'm going, and I will stop them at that point. I said, that's not their role. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition where we each other, we complete one another so we make 100%. No, you are whole in and of yourself. That would, if that were true, then anyone who is single is not complete, and that's a lie. You don't need marriage to complete you. What marriage does is it is God's tool in us to work on our character, as we talked about a few months ago, but it's also God showing Himself to us. But a single person is complete in, in, in who they are just because God is their God. You don't look to your spouse to completely complete you. You don't look to your kids to complete you. Because if we do that, that's idolatry. So in the life of Ahab, when we look at this step towards self-centeredness, the first step that he made was disobedience. We need to look at our own lives. How are we disobeying God? How are we looking at certain things to make us happy? What are the idols that we have in our lives? The second step that Ahab made was not just disobedience. The second step was the step of greed. It's the step of greed. Ahab made a step towards not just disobeying God, but being greedy. We find this story in 1 Kings 21. There was a man named Naboth. Okay, I love the Old Testament names. Okay, I don't see a lot of people throwing these names around necessarily. Uh, now, my friends right down here, James and Angela George, have named their sons Noah, Jonah, and Elijah. So they've used the good names, great names for their sons. But you guys didn't name any of your kids Naboth. What's up with that? Naboth owned a vineyard. And this vineyard just happened to sit right outside of Ahab's palace. And we pick this up in 1 Kings 21, this issue of greed. Now, there was a man named Naboth from Jezreel who owned a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of King Ahab of Samaria. One day Ahab said to Naboth, Since your vineyard is so convenient to my palace, okay, since I do not have to lift up the remote and I can punch it from my couch, okay, it is so convenient from my palace, I would like to buy it for my own vegetable garden, okay? I will give you a better vineyard in exchange, or if you prefer, I will pay you for it. But Naboth replied, No, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance that was passed down from my ancestors. Naboth stands in opposition to the king. And the reason he does that is because Moses had told the people of Israel, don't give your land, don't give your property to anyone because it is your inheritance in the, in the place of Israel. That is why you see the clashes, those border clashes that you see in Israel today. The Jews today are looking back at these statements that Moses said and not giving away property. And that's what Naboth said. No, I'm not going to give you my vineyard because it would disgrace all those who have worked it before me. And I'm not going to give it to the king. I'm not going to give it to anyone. But Ahab's next step in this path toward self-centeredness was greed. Remember the commandment? You shall not covet. This is what coveting is. Wanting something that someone else has. How many of our issues begin with coveting? Oh, they have the newest vehicle. I want that. They have the newest this. Oh, my neighbor's house looks like this. I want this. We went just the other day and uh, we picked up Allison who had been skiing on the, or had been uh, tubing on the lake with, 
one of the girls, other girls from EVC, and we went down by their house, and it was over in Lake Country. And we just drove around some of the houses in Lake Country just for the fun of it. And we saw one that was for sale. We said, just, just for the fun of it, let's see how much it is. Okay, $1.4 million, okay? And I'm here to tell you, there was a little bit of coveting going on in the eyes of Jennifer and myself as we were thinking about that. Wouldn't that be fun to have that view looking westward towards the sunset and all those things? Then we heard Jason's message and we said, okay, that's a God story in, in our life. But you see, these are the things. When we want things that we do not have, you know what we're saying to God when we do that? God, what you've given me is not enough. It really goes back to idolatry, doesn't it? It's putting things in God's place. Coveting is saying, God, you've not given me enough. And that's what happened in Ahab's life. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. So he took this next step of greed. Disobedience and greed. You know what's scary about Ahab? He sounds a lot like us, doesn't he? This guy who was the worst of worst, who was the ugly of all the kings, he sounds a lot like he has the same issues that we have. What is it in your life that you've wanted that you don't have that you covet to get? How is it leading you down this path toward self-centeredness? But the step for Ahab and greed was not enough. He took the next step. The next step is what I call uncontrolled emotions. I get a kick out of this with Ahab. This version, this is out of the um, New Living Translation. But Ahab, the word is, he is sullen and angry. Two different times. In 1 Kings 20, verse 43, and in 1 Kings 21, verse 4, it uses the same terminology. Ahab was sullen and angry. Now, before we go to that, I want you to show this picture. I could have used lots of illustrations today, but the illustration I would like to use of sullen and angry, this is my dog, Daisy, okay? I have Daisy and Minnie in my house. I'm not going to tell you what time of my daughter's lives that they were, they were really active in the princesses and in all things Disney, but I have Daisy and Minnie. And this is Daisy. I am Daisy's savior because I picked up Daisy from the pound. They thought Daisy was a whippet because she was so small and malnourished. This dog is not a whippet, okay? It is not little. It is not. She is not small. She is major overweight, and she gets sullen and angry. Let me tell you when Daisy gets the most sullen and angry. It is on times when we get the suitcases out. This is a smart dog, ladies and gentlemen. I want to tell you that she may look a little old, but she has her head on the pillow. She, what, what I could have shown you is the picture where she turns flat on her back and puts all fours right in the air, and that's typically how she sleeps because she's so secure. But when we get suitcases out, in order to go on a vacation, this dog is the pure example of sullen and angry. She literally will turn her back and not acknowledge that we exist. We went on a vacation four or five years ago, and it was around Christmas time. We went back to, to see my parents, and we had some folks who stayed at our house while we were gone because they were visiting another friend of ours, so we gave them our house for the week, but Daisy was there. And she went into the potty area in our master bedroom and she put her head over the toilet and didn't move. They said, I think, the, the people who stayed in our house, they said, uh, I think she thought that we flushed you guys down the toilet or something because 
She stayed there. Daisy will go on hunger strikes when we leave town. She will literally not eat for four or five days. Now, granted, that just puts her back in line with her normal body weight, okay, of what it should be. But when you think sullen and angry, I think Daisy. But Ahab was sullen and angry. I want you to listen to this. It sounds just like a whiny little kid. I mean, you can hear it. I'm going to use the voice of what your children probably sound like when they're sullen and angry when I read this about Ahab. In chapter 21, verse 4, it says, So Ahab went home angry and sullen because of Naboth's answer. The king went to bed with his face to the wall, and he refused to eat. And here's what he said, or here's what his wife said, Jezebel, Dunghill, old Dunghill came in. And she came in and said, what's the matter with you? Okay, how many husbands and wives you've heard this? What is the matter with you? Okay, that's what Jezebel says to him. And he said, what's made you, or she said, what's made you so upset that you're not eating? And he said, I asked Naboth to sell me his vineyard or trade it, but he refused. And Ahab told her these things. How are your emotions? Uncontrolled emotions. The next step for Ahab into this path towards self-centeredness was not just disobedience, it was not just greed, but it was uncontrolled emotions. The Bible gives us a brilliant depiction of Ahab who was sullen and angry. Wow, I've been there. I used Daisy as the example, but I could have used me. The times when I get sullen and angry, when somebody doesn't do what I want them to do, when somebody at your job, your work, they don't do what you want them to do, so you get sullen and angry. This is the worst king in all of Israel. Disobedient? Greedy? Uncontrolled emotions sounds like us. This is the reason with these uncontrolled emotions, this is the reason that one of the fruit of God's Spirit that Paul shares with us in Galatians chapter 5, one of the fruit of God's Spirit is self-control. Are your emotions out of control? Do you get angry and it's just uncontrolled anger? Do you pout up? Do you fly off the handle with other people? We see Ahab when we look in the mirror, don't we? The worst king of all. Disobedience, greed, uncontrolled emotions. But the final step that Ahab takes is what I call passive leadership. This path towards self-centeredness, disobedience, greed, uncontrolled emotions, and passive leadership. We see it again in the story of Naboth with this vineyard. He tells his wife, old Dunghill, old Jezebel, he tells her, this story, and Jezebel says, well, buddy, I'll take care of that. You think Naboth has anything against you? You're the king of Israel. What's wrong with you? Why are you acting this way? You have all the power. I'll take care of it, Naboth. I'll take care of him, and I'll take care of it for you, Ahab. Passive leadership in the life of Ahab. Here's what happens. Jezebel comes into Ahab and says, I'm going to take care of this. She says, here's what I'll do. I'm going to send a letter in your name to all the people of the village where Naboth lives. I'm going to proclaim a fast in the name of God. I'm going to proclaim a fast. This is breaking another commandment called taking the Lord's name in vain. Many of us think about it by swearing, 
But in actuality, what Jezebel did, she used God's name to set up Naboth. She said, I'm going to proclaim a fast, and then everyone's going to gather, and Naboth is going to be there. And then I'm going to pick two scoundrels. I'm going to pick, put them on either side of Naboth, and they're going to stand and say that Naboth has cursed God and the king. It wasn't true, but Jezebel had it figured out. She put a plan in action, and Naboth was taken out by all the villagers and was killed. And then she comes in and presents Ahab with Naboth's garden. You see, his greed and his disobedience, it led to this issue of passive leadership. Passive leadership. Where we get others to do what we're not willing to do. You know what passive leadership looks like in your life? When you say, my kids aren't my responsibility, my things aren't my, my job's not my responsibility, it's passive leadership. When you put other people out there, you see what Ahab did is he allowed Jezebel to take a place that was not rightfully hers. And she took this vineyard for Ahab. But for you and I, what does passive leadership look like for us? Moms, dads, we're responsible for the actions of our kids. It's a, an understanding of a principle of authority. That when you have other people who are in your home, other people who work for you, their character reflects the character that is within you as you lead. One of the things that Bart and I have spent a lot of time talking about is this congregation is a reflection of our character as well. Because God has given us this congregation to model and to lead. And we understand that God is going to require of us how this congregation was led. But He's going to do the same thing in your homes. He's going to do the same things in the people that you work with. The people that are underneath your responsibility, guess what? Reflect your character. And that's what happened in the life of Ahab. His final step was passive leadership where he allowed Jezebel to go ahead and finish the breaking of the rest of the commandments. How about murder? How about... uh, taking advantage of a neighbor. That's what she did to Naboth. How about lying? These are the things that she did. And when she chose these two individuals who would be with her in her scheme to eventually take Naboth, again, it's a picture pointing to the cross. Remember where Jesus was? He was put up with two individuals next to Him who were also thieves or who were thieves. Jesus was not a thief, but these two thieves were put on each side of Jesus. And I believe it was a picture pointing back to this story of just how Jezebel had taken advantage of Ahab's passive leadership and had gone to the greatest extreme, even of killing someone. Folks, we can't get by with passive leadership. God desires for us to take leadership and to take an understanding of that and to follow Him with our whole lives. So we see this path. Disobedience, greed, uncontrolled emotions, passive leadership. We have to ask, even in the case, or we have to ask, what happens to Ahab? What's the eventual thing? How does God react to this worst king? We find this, this prophecy, comes from the prophet 
1 Kings 21. So he says to Ahab, So now the Lord says, I will bring disaster on you and consume you. I will destroy every one of your male descendants, slave and free alike, anywhere in Israel. I'm going to destroy your, I'm going to destroy your family as I did Jeroboam, the son of Nebath, and the family of Baasha, son of Ahijah, for you have made me angry and have led Israel into sin. And regarding Jezebel, old dunghill, regarding her, I haven't forgotten her, the Lord says, dogs will eat Jezebel's body at the plot in the land of Israel. And this caused Jezebel to do something. She gathered all her musicians throughout the kingdom and she commissioned them to do a song. Here's the song. You may have... Yeah, Jezebel, she, she probably wrote a song something like that because it is true that Jezebel would be eaten by dogs. There was a man that God raised up. His name was Jehu. And he went to Jezebel and he told them to throw her out of the castle. And these servants threw her out and she died. And he said, I want to make sure that she's dead. And he sent some folks out there. And to fulfill this prophecy, she had already been eaten up. The only thing that the Bible says that was left was her skull and her hands and feet. That was it. The dogs had eaten everything else. You see, God always responds. We may think that God didn't see what we did, that God didn't, doesn't care, but God always responds. But this would be a difficult place to stop this message. I want you to see one final thing. Even in the case of Ahab, God extends His grace. Keep in mind what I've said to you, what I've presented to you today. He is the worst king ever to be on the face of the earth. The worst. Nero of the Roman Empire, perhaps Hitler, you name the kings that you want to name, Saddam Hussein, who do you want to name? The Bible says that Ahab was the worst of all that had ever been. And yet God extends his grace to the worst of the worst. First Kings 21 says, but when Ahab heard this message, what I just shared, what the prophecy was going to be, he tore his clothing and he dressed in burlap and he fasted. He even slept in burlap, which is very uncomfortable. He went about in deep mourning. Then another message from the Lord came to Elijah. Do you see how Ahab, this is what God says, has humbled himself before me? Because he has done this. I will not do what I promised during his lifetime. It will happen to his sons. I will destroy his dynasty. You see, even in the midst of all the things that Ahab did, God showed him grace. Here's the message for us. If you follow that path of disobedience, greed, uncontrolled emotions, passive leadership, I venture to guess that every person in this room, and I would, my hand would be raised, I've experienced all of those. I'm just as bad as Ahab. Well, God, in your hands, I'm just, and in your sight, I'm just as bad as Ahab. God, what am I supposed to do with that? I've experienced all the things that the worst king of all time have ex has experienced and has done. I've experienced those same things. Disobedience and greed. 
I've had passive leadership. I've had uncontrolled emotions. And God says, but what Ahab didn't experience was Jesus Christ. All the Old Testament, all the stories of Ahab are pointing us to Jesus. The grace that God showed Ahab was short-lived. The grace that's available to you and I today is Jesus Christ. He covers us. Here's the message for you and I today. I don't care what it is that you've done. I don't care what you've experienced. I don't care if you've murdered, if you've hurt others, if you've had any one of these things that you've seen today in the life of Ahab. Jesus Christ is extended to you and I. The hope of all these kings is that they point us to Christ. That even in the emotions and the things that we see in their lives, Christ is available to us today. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you just to think about your life for just a moment. I want you to think about where you're at today. As I said those four things that were the path of of a life of self-centeredness, you probably identified with one or more of those. And if you're here today and you have never invited Christ to be your Savior and Lord, then I want to ask you today, would you come to Him? Would you understand that Jesus Christ came, if you had been the only one on earth, He would have come and died just for you. You are here today as no accident. He loves you. He wants to come into your life. If you've never asked Christ to come into your life, I want you just to pray a prayer that would go something like this. Dear Jesus, I know that I've been disobedient. I know that I've had uncontrolled emotions. I know that my life has... I've put other things before you. I've, I've, I've been an idolater. But Jesus, would you come in and cover my life today? Thank you, Jesus, for doing that. If you prayed a prayer like that, if you just the sense the attitude of your heart, God will come in. Jesus will reign in your heart. Just like He's done for so many of us who do not stand in pride today. We stand in humility because we realize Ahab is just like us. And but for the grace of God, our lives would be the same. For others of you, you've experienced some of these things. Make that step of repentance. Make that step of confession. You can be in right standing with God today before you leave this place. Father, I come to You and I ask You and thank You for this opportunity just to share the beauty of Your Word, how it speaks to really common people just like us. That there were people literally thousands of years ago who weren't very different from us. Jesus, thank You that Ahab didn't get to experience Your Son. But we did. And we do. And so thank You that Jesus is available to us. Lord, I pray for every person here that they would experience You in all Your fullness today. Lord, I lift up this offering that we are going to take up today. Lord, You don't need our money, but all we have is Yours. And I pray that as we give 
We understand we're not giving to a pastor or a, a place or a church. We're giving to you. So, Father, may our offerings be extravagant and worthy of who you are. May they be exactly what you've called us to do, that we might see in our own lives obedience, because that's what you call us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.